If you have your copy of God's Word, and I hope that you do, let's turn together to the book of Jude. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there's one provided there in the pew for you. Jude, second to last book of the New Testament. One chapter in this book, and this morning we're going to look at verses 17 through 23. We're very close to the end of our study here uh, in this letter that Jude wrote to the churches contending for the truth of the gospel. He, he writes to this church, exhorting them, calling them, commanding them that it is their responsibility as believers to contend for the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. He's writing this letter in the face of the false teachings of Gnosticism and Antinomianism. And Gnosticism being that teaching that there were higher levels of, of spirituality to which only certain people could obtain. And as they obtained these certain levels of spirituality because they viewed the spiritual as good and the physical as, as non-consequential, it allowed them to have a teaching and a life practice which said that it does not matter what you do in your physical body, it does not matter what sins you commit, it does not matter how you live because God is not concerned with any of that, He's only concerned with the spiritual side. So Jude is confronting this Gnosticism which had caused people to begin to live lives of wicked idolatry, ungodly lives, Jude says. He, he uses that phrase over and over again, these ungodly men doing ungodly deeds in an ungodly way. But he was also confronting antinomianism. Antinomianism is the teaching that, that God's law is not relevant anymore, and that because God's grace is abundant, and because there is more of God's grace when we sin, that we should sin all the more so that we can partake more of God's grace, which Paul, the apostle, had already confronted in his own writings when he said, so shall we sin all the more so that grace may abound? May it never be. God's grace is a wonderful blessing to the believer. We have such great hope in knowing that because God is gracious towards us, he has forgiven our sins, past, present, and future. All of our sins have been forgiven in the shed blood of Jesus Christ if we are in Christ. But we do not make an abuse of God's grace and just say, because God will forgive us, we sin all the more. So Judas writing to confront this rise of false teaching inside the church. And throughout the letter so far, we've seen him confront very strongly and soundly the teachings and the characteristics of these false teachers. Because he wants them to recognize and to understand how subtle and conniving these false teachers are. They're not coming in boldly and brashly proclaiming to be a false teacher. They're coming in subtly, pretending to be a teacher of truth, pretending to be a teacher of light. And then once they have gained a following, once they have gained an audience, then they begin to unveil themselves and to unveil the heresy which they really believe. So throughout this letter, Jude has continued over and over to hammer this idea home, that we as Christians must be on the watch, and that it is our responsibility to contend for this faith, because it is a faith that has been handed down to us from the apostles, taught to them by Jesus Christ, and then handed down throughout the history of the church. Brothers and sisters, nothing should excite us more than understanding that the gospel that we possess in our Bibles, the scriptures that we hold, is something that has been handed down through countless centuries from faithful Christian to faithful Christian. It has not changed. The truth of God's word has not been altered or, or formatted in any way. We have the same truth. There are those who say, well, how do you know that men haven't changed it? Well, brothers and sisters, if we believe in a God who could create the world out of nothing in six days, if we believe a God who could part the Red Sea and allow the Israelites to walk across on dry land, then how can we not also believe in a God who can keep his word pure throughout the centuries? Keeping his word pure is a small task for God in comparison to all of the other things that God has done on our behalf. So this is this faith that we possess. This is the treasure to us as Christians. The gospel, the truth that has saved us, it is our treasure. We, we may possess a lot of things in this life that we love. If you go to your house, I'm sure that sitting on a mantle somewhere, sitting on a table somewhere, is some object or thing that is close and dear to you. Maybe it's a family heirloom. Maybe it's a special thing, that a gift that someone gave to you somewhere along the line. And so it's that one thing that you, you, you adore, you treasure because of how special it is to you. 
But in the life of the believer, the thing that we treasure above all, the thing that we protect and keep and hold above all must be the gospel of Jesus Christ and must be the truth of that gospel. If you found your way there in Jude, let's stand together as we read God's word. Jude, starting in verse 17. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you in the last time, there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly minded, devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. You can be seated this morning. We notice here a change in Jude's writing. Before he had been solely pointing out the error of these false teachers. He'd been giving these believers instructions on how to recognize and how to confront. But now here in verse 17, he he makes a switch. He says, now, but you, beloved. Now we're going to see his tender exhortation to these believers. And we're also going to see his tender exhortation towards us, even in this day and time. This is the wonderful thing about the Word of God, is that truth is truth. And the truth that God spoke through Jude to the church here in the first century, He is still speaking to us. Because the things that were happening for the church in the first century are still happening to the church in the 21st century. So it is as if God is speaking to us, speaking this to us here, even in this very moment. Here in this passage, we find this love that Jude has for the church on display. We see it fleshed out in his life. He's going to offer to them a challenge here that while they are watching for false teachers, that they must do so in the proper way. That while they are watching for false teachers, they must do so in a way that honors God in in that process, but that they also too must watch and bear concern for their own souls. It was the Puritan Thomas Manton who said, when we speak against error, we should do so out of love and a tender heart, seeking the good of people's souls in all discussions we need to watch our hearts. Brothers and sisters, it is very easy when we are confronting false teachers, when we are confronting false doctrine, it is very easy to get spiritually riled up, to become passionate about what we're doing. And to do so not out of an attitude of a desire for the preservation of the gospel, but almost out of an attitude of destruction. They were wanting to crush those false teachers. And we do. We want to see their false teachings stopped. But we should also desire that if it are possible, if God would do it, that he would change the heart of those false teachers. That he would change them and bring them from a place of where they are in sinfulness and in rebellion to a place to where they serve God. What a greater testimony to see someone who was teaching something falsely, who is misleading many, to be brought to correction, submit themselves to the authority of Christ, and follow after him in obedience and truth. The first thing that I want you to notice that Jude points out here in this passage is that there must be a remembrance of truth. A remembrance of truth. And look with me there at verses 17 through 19. He says, But you, beloved ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. That they were saying to you in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly minded, devoid of the spirit. Notice that word there, remember. He says you ought to remember. There's a continual warning throughout the teachings of the Scripture about these false teachers. There's a continual theme that we see throughout the Gospels because they knew that danger would be coming. 
that anytime truth is proclaimed, Satan is going to do everything he can to undermine that truth. When Jude here talks about the idea of remembering, he says, remember the words that were spoken. He's not just talking about the recollection or the, or the remembrance of learned facts. There are a lot of people who have a great memory and they can spout off fact after fact, resource after resource to you. And that's not what Jude is talking about here. He's not just talking about remembering doctrine or remembering passages of scripture, but he's talking about taking those things which they've learned and living them out in your life. Brothers and sisters, it does no good for someone to know every single verse of Scripture in the Bible if it does not then impact the way that they live their life. You could have everything memorized from Genesis to Revelation, but if it does not change how you act in your life, if it does not cause you to have a greater desire to follow after Christ, if it does not cause a greater desire to love those who are your enemies, if it does not cause a greater desire to seek to grow into the knowledge and the image of Jesus Christ, then it is worthless. So Jude here is not talking about remembering facts. He's talking about taking what we have learned and putting it into practice. The words that were spoken, he says, by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. There are many today who try to tear down or to discredit the teachings of the apostles. There are so as I suppose so-called movement called red letter Christians. It's been around for a couple of decades now. But red letter Christians say that really the only things that Christians that we have to obey are the words that are written in red in the New Testament. Now, if you have a red letter edition Bible, you'll know that those are the words that are attributed to Jesus inside of your Bible. I personally don't like red letter Bibles, and I'll tell you why, because of this kind of movement. Now, if you have one, don't go out and buy a new Bible. I'm not saying that. But the words in red are the words that Jesus is attributed to have spoken out loud. But John chapter 1 tells us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. So every single word in the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, whether it's in red or black, is the words of Jesus Christ, the Word of the living God. But the reason that they want to do that is because if you eliminate the teachings of Paul... If you eliminate the teachings of Jude, if you eliminate the teachings of Peter, and you say all we have to adhere to are the words of Jesus, then there's a lot of open ground that opens up there. There are those who try to discredit the teachings of the Apostle Paul. They call him misogynistic. They call him arrogant. They call him a number of things. In fact, just this past week, I saw a video where uh, this, um, and I use this term loosely, but this pastor said that she was, this, and I this pastor was confronting someone who had, who had quoted the Apostle Paul. And this pastor said, well, the words of the Apostle Paul aren't really Scripture. So we don't have to follow them. This is why Jude, this is why all through the New Testament, we see the establishment of the apostleship and the truth of Scripture that God handed his word to the apostles. He taught them during that three and a half years. And he says, I'm entrusting you with this word. It is your responsibility to take it and to teach it to others. So when we look back at the history of the church, we see that this word has been established to us by the apostles. It is the authority of the apostles that holds together the truth of the gospel. Not that these men are above any other men, it's not that they are greater Christians, but God called them for a specific purpose to be the ones by which the gospel and the doctrine of the church was translated down through the ages. We look back and we see the authority of the apostles, the teaching of the apostles is the essence of our faith. This is how we know what Jesus taught. This is how we know this doctrine, because the apostles wrote it down under the inspiration of the scriptures. So Jude calls them back to this remembrance of truth. He says, remember what the apostles said. Remember the doctrine that you have been taught. Remember the truth that has been proclaimed. And notice what he says that they were teaching. He says, they were saying to you in the last time, there will be mockers following after their own 
ungodly lusts. I want to remind you this morning of the many places where we see this in the Scripture. And I want to take the time this morning to read through these, because it's important for us to understand that the confronting of false teachers was not just an isolated thing here in the book of Jude. Paul in Acts chapter 20 says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. First Timothy chapter four, but the spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Second Timothy four, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths. Second Peter chapter two. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of the way of truth will be maligned, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep." Peter would continue in chapter 3, knowing this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. A couple of things that I would hope that you would notice in those passages. Number one is that these false teachers most often arise not from outside the church, but from inside the church. This is the cunning nature of Satan and his deceptive practices, that he arises those false teachers inside the church after they have built a level of trust, after they have built a level of authority. And in order for Christians to recognize those false teachings, what must we do? We must know the truth ourselves. This is why Jude is encouraging them to remember the teachings of the apostles, because that is how you recognize it. Secondly, notice that it was a destructive thing. He encourages them to recognize the destruction that these false teachers will bring upon the church. But the third thing that I want you to notice here, and Jude references it here in his passage, he says, in the last time, there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. Now, he says, in the last time. Now, a lot of times when people see that phrase, the last days, we have this tendency to think uh, of some type of of end times prophetic event. But we understand from the scriptures that the last days began when Jesus died and ascended back into heaven. We are now living in the last days. We've been living in the last days since Jesus ascended back into heaven. So we hear people talk about this all the time. It's like, oh, we're living in the last days. It's like, well, yeah, we have been for quite some time now and we'll continue to be. And the reason that he emphasizes this is because this is going to be a continual pattern. Until Jesus returns, the pattern that Satan is going to try to use to destroy the church most greatly is to try to infiltrate it with false teachers. It is a far more effective method than anything else that Satan uses. Now, we know that Satan uses persecution. We know that Satan uses even those who uh, he uses the, the crushing power and the weight of, of governments and laws But the most effective thing that Satan has is to bring false teachers into the church from within the church. And this is why over and over again, we see this cry from Jude, from Paul, from Peter, that we should watch and be on the lookout. But there's an encouragement here, brothers and sisters. There's an encouragement that we should not be surprised when we see these things happening. I think oftentimes when people see false teachers begin to rise up, we're grieved and we should be grieved for the truth of the gospel. But sometimes people are grieved because it's like, well, why would, why would this happen? Well, because God said it was going to happen. And so we, we don't have to despair when we see it happening. It, it drives us to action. It drives us to do what God has called us to do. But we don't have to despair because God has already promised that it was coming. 
He said, this is going to happen. So when you see it happening, just remember, oh yeah, he said it was going to happen. And now what has he said that we are to do in the face of it? There will be those who rise up. We can trust and hope because God has promised. He promises all throughout this that these false teachers will not escape punishment. That although they deceive, that ultimately they will receive the just consequences of their error. I want you to notice here that also that not only was this an expected event, that this would come. As they're remembering this truth, they must also remember that the apostles had told them the error by which these false teachers would give evidence. He says, number one, that they are mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. That passage I read in 2 Peter said that they would come mocking the second coming of Christ. Where is the promise of his coming? They're mocking the resurrection of Christ. They're mocking his soon and coming return. Why would someone mock the second coming of Christ? Well, what does the second coming of Christ mean to a lost person? It means the judgment of God is on the way. And if you deny the second coming of Christ, that means you can deny the coming judgment of God. And by denying the judgment of God, it allows you to live your life in a way that you want to live. Ultimately, brothers and sisters, this is what all lost people do. They deny the second coming of Christ. They deny the existence of God. And by repeating that lie to themselves over and over again, they coddle themselves into this place where they no longer fear God's judgment. They no longer fear God's wrath. And it allows them to live their life in an unbrashed way, not concerned about what's going to happen to them in the end. They have no fear of God. They mock it. It's interesting to me as I studied this week, the Septuagint actually translates this word mockers as pestilence. That these false teachers were the, the pestilence of the early church. And I think it's a good word because this is exactly what it is to the modern church as well. To quote Thomas Manton again, he says, scorning or mocking comes from the habit of sinning and prepares the way for freedom in sinning. It's exactly what we were just talking about. The more people scorn, the more it hardens their heart to the truth, and it gives way for them to live their life, exactly as Jude says here. They will be mockers, what? Following after their own ungodly lusts. They have no concern of God. They have no concern of truth. And notice what he goes on to say. We'll, we'll come back to the first part of verse 19, but he says they are worldly minded. Following after their lusts, worldly minded. These two phrases uh, paint the idea that these are sensual, carnal, and animalistic men. They have nothing about the spirit inside of them. All they have is the human nature. And the human nature no matter how much someone tries in their own strength, the human nature will eventually only give way in yielding to the flesh of that nature. Someone without Christ, they can try to do everything that they can in their own strength, but ultimately in the end, they will always give over to the flesh because that's what the human nature does. So he says they mock the second coming, they mock the truth of the scriptures, they mock the who God is, they mock the fear of God, ultimately leading to them having following after their own godly lusts. But notice there in verse 19, he says these are also the ones who cause division. Now, if you remember, I told you that Jude was confronting the teachings of the Gnostics and of the Antinomians. The Gnostics taught that, again, there were higher levels and that conveniently enough that the leaders of the Gnostic movement, because they were smarter and more spiritual and more educated, they were on that higher level where everybody else was not. This is the reason they had caused divisions in the love feast. They were separating themselves out. They were basically forming spiritual cliques inside of the church. They were creating these divisions amongst the brethren amongst the haves and the have-nots, according to them, the spiritual and the not spiritual. And instead of creating unity in the church, which the Scripture over and over calls us to do, these false teachers were creating disunity in the church. And why would someone want to do this? Why would someone want to separate and cause division? Well, think about it. 
if you can separate yourselves out and you can surround yourself with only those who you say have the same level of spiritual wisdom and insight as you do, you isolate yourself. And by isolating yourself, you have no accountability. By isolating yourself, you have no authority. By isolating yourself, you can do whatever you want to do because you've surrounded yourself with people who are doing exactly the same thing that you are. Brothers and sisters, this is why it's so dangerous when someone says that they're a Christian, but then they do not go to church. The Scripture tells us that we come together as the body of Christ to hold each other accountable. And when we isolate ourselves from the teaching of the church, when we isolate ourselves from the community of faith, we end up surrounding ourselves with people who are just like us, people who are not going to hold us accountable, people who are not going to question us when we're doing something we shouldn't do, people who can't encourage us in the spiritual walk. So one of the key evidences of these false teachers are these ones who would bring division and disunity into the church, separating themselves out from the body of Christ in order that they can do what they want to do without consequence. Now, I want you to notice this key part there in verse 19. As he's talking about these false teachers, notice there in verse 19, he says, they are devoid of the Spirit. That phrase means exactly what it seems like it means. Judas saying these false teachers are not Christians who have been misled. These are not who have stumbled into uh, error. He says these are devoid of the spirit. That means they are as lost as lost can be. Their words, their actions prove it. Romans chapter 8, verse 9 tells us, says, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. And if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of God, he does not belong to him. We know that the Spirit of God and the Spirit of the flesh cannot dwell together. And so when you see these men who have been characterized by a life living in pursuit of the Spirit of the flesh, Jude said it is profoundly obvious that these men are devoid of the Spirit. It is profoundly obvious that they are lost. And Jude had no trouble saying so. He he, He felt no fear in demonstrating this. Now, brothers and sisters, we're we're not talking about having a a, a brother or sister in Christ who makes a a, a silly decision, makes a foolish decision, and then we point the finger at them and say, oh, yep, see, I knew it. You're not really saved. It's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is someone whose life is more characterized by the flesh and sin than anything else. There was nothing besides a few vocal statements that these false teachers might make. There was nothing in their lives that characterized holiness, righteousness, and a pursuit of Christ. It would be like someone saying, I love my wife so dearly. And then as you're standing there and that person standing there with their wife, he turns around and hits her upside the head. Now, what speaks more loudly to what that person said? Their, their voice, what they said, I love my wife, or the physical action that he performed. Now, brothers and sisters, the church is the bride of Christ. And we can say we love Jesus and we love God. But if our actions demonstrate the exact opposite of that, if the characteristics of our life are so profoundly obvious that that's not the truth, then we're lost. Jude says, they're devoid of the Spirit. So that's the remembrance of truth. Jude calls them to remember this truth of the apostles so that they can readily and easily recognize the false teachers, but so that then they can do what he calls them to do in this next part. Because they're going to remember the teachings of the apostles in order to recognize false teachers, but they're also going to recognize it so that secondly, they can have a discipline of self. A discipline of self. Now look with me at verses 20 and 21. 
He says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Notice he uses that phrase again, beloved. He loves the church. He loves these Christians. And chances are he doesn't know some of them. He doesn't know all their names. He's never met all of them face to face. But this is the beautiful thing about the body of Christ. Is that if we are in Christ, if we are part of the church, we love one another. We care for one another. This is, uh, this is one of the things that brings me such great joy is when I'm out somewhere and I meet someone for the very first time and I'm talking to them. That there is a, a connection that is made between Christians that sometimes even before the words are said out loud, you know that you are with a brother or sister in Christ. And that even when, and then once you find that out, it's like, the, yeah, this is my brother in Christ. This is my sister in Christ. There is a love that compels inside of us from Christ that even though I don't know anything about their life, I don't know who they're married to. I don't know who their family is. I don't know where they're from. I don't know what their occupation is. There is a love that is present in us for that person because of the love of Christ in us. And this is this love we see demonstrated here through Jude. He is so concerned for them. And here we see his deep concern for them because what he's doing here in this passage is saying that, brothers and sisters, although you must be deeply concerned with the truth of the gospel, you must be deeply concerned with confronting false teachers, you must also be careful to watch out for your own soul. You must not become so distracted by confronting false teachers that you forget what your own life needs spiritually. I came across a quote this past week from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he's, he's talking about the spiritual life and, and talking about different characteristics in, in, in the spiritual life in which people can fall into. And I thought this, this quote from here speaks very profoundly to what Jude is pointing out here. Because what Jude is trying to avoid from happening is for the Christian life to create a sense of, of lack of balance. That they would fall to one side or the other. And that they would veer off into just committing themselves to chasing after false teachers, but not remember the other things that Christians are called to do. And most importantly, not to remember the concern of their own spiritual well-being in the midst of it. So here's what Dr. Jones had to say. He says, quote, I put as my 10th test a lack of balance. You will generally find that people who are animated by a false zeal see only one thing, one aspect of the truth only, and are not interested in anything else. It may be evangelism only. It may be Calvinism only. It may be Arminianism only. It may be prophecy only. That is the one thing, and with all their might and main, they press this one thing and are not interested in anything else. That is always a fatal sign. This has always been the trouble with heretics. They are men and women who have lost their balance. They have become so absorbed by one thing that they see nothing else. And they so press this one thing that not only do they lose their balance, this one thing becomes a lie. It is blind zeal, and zeal can be blinding. End quote. Jude does not want to see these Christians get so off course in doing a good thing that it causes them to lose the balance of their Christian life. We've seen this happen in different people. People who become so focused on one aspect of the Christian life that they lose focus on everything else. So notice what Jude tells them to do. He says, but you, beloved, he says, build, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Building yourself up. This is the idea of a construction metaphor. I'm sure all of us in here have either built a house or watched a house being constructed. And there's a lot of work that goes into the construction of a house. The property has to be cleared off. Preparations have to be made. Supplies have to be ordered. 
But one of the most important things in the construction of a house is the foundation. If the foundation is not level, the house will not be level. If the foundation is cracked, it will not support the weight of the house. If it's on faulty ground or soil, then eventually over time, it's going to sink down one side or the other, and the whole building will be destroyed. And so Jude is calling us here to establish and to build on our faith. And what is our faith established on? Our faith has been laid, what does Ephesians tell us, having been built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone and whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you are also being built into a dwelling place or a dwelling of God in the spirit. We are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and their teachings with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. This speaks to the relationship of our faith, our loyalty to the faith that we continue over and over to build ourselves up. The Christian life does not happen by accident. We don't become a Christian and immediately know everything there is to know about the Scripture. We don't become a Christian and immediately become strong in every single area and aspect of the Christian life. We must build ourselves up. This is a continual feeding upon the Word of God through study and meditation and prayer. There's work that has to happen. And we're not working to earn our salvation. Jesus Christ has saved us. It is by grace through faith that we are saved, not of works, lest any man should boast. We're not working for our salvation. But if we want to grow in our faith, we must put the effort in. We must open this book and read the pages. We must go to God in prayer and meditate with him there so that he can minister to us through the word, through the prayer, through the sacraments. He says to build yourselves up. The construction of the Christian house never stops. It's always being built up. It never stops. We never reach a point in our Christian life where we put the last nail in the board until Jesus returns. When Jesus returns, the house is finished. But until then, construction continues. He says to build ourselves up in our most holy faith. He calls it a holy faith in contrast to the false faith, the false faith that was being proclaimed by those teachers. Faith is continually being built up. It's not satisfied, but desiring more and more. This faith, this holy faith is again, this one that was given to us by the apostles. This faith, this teaching of the scripture is the one that's been handed down. He says, remember it and then use what you remember to build upon the foundation that they laid for you. Take what you have learned, study it, remember it, pray about it, and practice it. The Christian life is one of action and obedience, not to earn our salvation, but because of what Christ has done for us. He goes on. He says, build yourselves up on this holy faith. He says, praying in the Holy Spirit. This means to pray in the power of the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 6 tells us, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for the saints. We pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray in Him, with Him, and by Him. Matthew Henry said to be praying in the power of the Holy Spirit is under his guidance and influence according to the rule of his word with faith, fervency, and constant persevering importunity. How do we pray? We pray the way that God has taught us to pray. By providence this morning, our catechism in the bulletin was about the Lord's Prayer. How did God teach us to pray? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So we pray according to the word by which he's given us guidance. But we pray with faith. We pray with expectancy because the scriptures have told us to pray to expect God to move. And we pray with fervency because we're not praying to some vain deity sitting on a shelf somewhere. We're not praying to an idol carved into a rock in some temple across the land. 
But we are praying to the true and living God, the only one who sits upon the throne, who rules and reigns and can do all things according to his power and his plan. Brothers and sisters, have you ever considered the power that you have been given through prayer? There are people who, when they think things done, they write to their congressman. They write to the president. And they think, oh, well, if I can just write to somebody in power and authority, maybe we can get things done. But in a moment, all you have to do is open your mouth and you speak to the one who has all power and authority. And he hears you. He does not turn a blind ear to your prayers. He hears your prayers. He listens to your prayers. And the scripture tells us that if we pray according to his word and we pray according to his will, that he answers our prayers. Brothers and sisters, what a blessed promise. When we pray in the Holy Spirit, we can pray fervently and expectantly because we know that God will answer the prayers that we pray. It is not too bold to say that because the scripture says that the reason that we don't get answers to our prayer is because we ask amiss. That means we're not praying in the power of the Holy Spirit. We're praying according to our own will and our own desires. But when we pray in the power of the Holy Spirit, we ask accordingly and he will answer our prayers. He hears and he will answer. And so Jude says, Build yourselves up on the faith. Continue to be studying his word. Continue to be remembering the teaching of the apostles and the doctrine of the church. A laying a foundation brick by brick, establishing the household of faith in your own life. He says, and pray in the power of the Holy Spirit, depending upon the Spirit's help and prayer. Those sisters, we cannot pray without the help of the Holy Spirit. When we try to pray without the help of the Holy Spirit, we end up babbling. When we try to pray without the power of the Holy Spirit, we ended up focused on us. But when we pray with the power of the Spirit, we can pray boldly. And we have this promise given to us in Romans chapter 8. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to his will. In our moments of weakness, if we depend upon him, the Holy Spirit helps us. He prays for us and with us. Now notice going on. Verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Keep, keep yourselves in the love of God. We know that God's love is granted to us not because of what we've deserved or what we've earned, but because of his mercy. It is unmerited favor that God shows us his love. But now how do we keep ourselves in the love of God? We're not talking here about keeping our salvation, but we're talking here about this passionate love for God, that we are loving him the same way that he loves us, that we are being nurtured by his love. We must be careful to keep ourselves in the love of God so that we do not fall away from the clear teachings of Scripture. And how has God enabled us to do this? Well, first, he's given us his word. Right? This is not just a book. This is a living book. It is the very word of God. And every time we open its pages and every time we sit down to read it, God ministers to our soul through his word. This is why before we do anything else in the day, before we even feed our own physical body, we should consider our desperate need for the truth of God's word to fill us for the day. It is something we need above anything else. He's given us his word. He's also given us prayer. Jude has already addressed that. God has given us the word and the prayer. He's also given us the sacraments. Baptism, although it only happens once, is a ministry that God does in our heart. It doesn't save us. It's an outward demonstration. But it's still a ministry that God does to us. And then coming to the Lord's table. We don't believe 
As Baptists, we do not believe that in the Lord's table that these crackers and this juice are transformed into the body and blood of Christ. We don't believe, as the Catholics do, that, it, that, that, that a physical change happens. It's still just a cracker and it's still just juice. But as Reformed Baptists, we do believe that God ministers to our souls in the taking of the Lord's Supper. He does a work in our hearts as we come to the table together. It is not just an empty ritual. If it was just an empty ritual, we wouldn't do it. There's nothing purposeful of it. But we believe that God does something in us and through us as we come to the Lord's table together. So God has given us all of these things in order to keep ourselves in the love of God, to keep ourselves passionate about following after him. The scripture tells us that he endures to the end shall be saved. That's not talking about a doubting on whether God can cause someone to endure to the end. We know that God can keep us. Philippians tells us, I'm confident of this one thing, that he who began a good work and you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. There's no doubt in God's power to keep us to the end. But there is very clear teaching in Scripture that although God has saved us and our salvation depends nothing on us, that our process of sanctification, our growth in Him, does not happen if we sit idle. There is human effort that must be put into practice in order if we will grow in Christ. We cannot just sit on the couch and accept and expect to grow in holiness. We cannot just sit on the couch and expect for God's transforming work to happen as we go out and be obedient to him. He says, keep yourselves in this most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Now notice what he says. Waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. We are waiting, watching, and looking for the blessed hope and return of Christ. This is what we look for and long for as believers. I was just sharing the other day with someone. Over the past several months, the Lord has really been shaping my heart in in a greater understanding of, of what this means. As I see the the world that we're in, as I see blessed saints going home to be with Christ, as I read the Bible and I understand more about who God is and what he's done for us, I can more clearly identify with what Paul says. That I desire to be here, but then I also want to be over there. I understand why God has me here, but man, what, what a joy to know the full and lasting presence of our Lord and Savior. And so as Christians, we, we should long for that day when Jesus will return. That one day the skies will part, Christ will step out, and he will bring all of this to an end. Now, but how as Christians, how is this a call for us to joy? Because we know that over and over again, Jude in this passage, in this book, has been talking about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ as a means of judgment against the wicked as a means of pointing to their eternal destruction, which was foreordained from the beginning of time. Notice that word there, mercy. He says, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. When Jesus Christ comes back, brothers and sisters, he is not coming back as our judge. He's coming back as our Savior. He's going to judge the wicked. He's going to judge the unrighteous. They're going to stand before him and every knee will bow and every tongue confess. But Jesus, when it comes to that moment, which we will give an account, he will be our advocate. He will be our defender. And our sins have been forgiven already. So Jesus is not coming for us with judgment. We have no fear of judgment, but he is coming for us with mercy and grace to take us to that blessed hope of eternal life. We have so much to look forward to. We have so much that is awaiting us. And we don't have time this morning to continue on. We'll pick up back in verse 22 next week. But I want you to remind you of what we looked at this morning. Is that as Christians, we must continually be reminding ourselves 
of the teaching of the apostles and the teaching of the church. Brothers and sisters, I love to read. I read a lot of books and I read a lot of books from different authors. But if we have yet but one thing and one opportunity to read during the day or during the week, let's not be reading the latest bestseller. Let's not be reading the news. Let's not be reading anything else. Let's be reading the word of God and reminding ourselves of what the scripture teaches us. It is vitally important to the truth of the, of the gospel. It is vitally important to us as Christians that we remind ourselves over and over again what God has taught us through his word. And let us be building ourselves up in the faith. It is very easy as Christians to let cobwebs build up. It's very easy as Christians to slow down the construction process. I remember as a young boy, there was a house out near where we lived that the the gentleman who was building the house only built as much as he had enough money for at the time. So he would build for a while and then it would sit for about six months, eight months, a year. And then you could tell he'd saved up some more money. He'd continue construction on the house and it would grow. He was continually building slowly but surely. But I remember another house that I used to see all the time where I don't know what happened. Whether the people just, they they lost their money, something happened in their life, they couldn't build it, but they had constructed a house and and the outside was there, the foundation was there, the framing was there, they had sheeted the outside of the house. That was it. And the house just sat there. it, It was a house by all standards, right? The building was there, it looked like a house. But you know what happened over time? Because construction didn't continue the weather began to have an impact on it. Things began to rot. Holes began to show up. And eventually they tore it down. Right? Because the construction didn't continue and the construction was never completed. Brothers and sisters, we must continually build ourselves up. The construction of our spiritual house must never stop. We must be continually doing what God has called us to do in reading his word, in praying and in serving him to be obedient to what he's called us to do. Praying in the power of the Holy Spirit as we await the return of our soon and coming Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time. We pray, God, that you would guide our hearts or help us as we look to the truth of your word to be reminded God, of of all that you have taught us here. Lord, may we not forget the teachings of the church. May we not allow our minds to uh, to be scuttled away into new things, but may we build and have our foundation on you. Lord, help us to grow in you daily. Lord, I know that there are people in this room who have been Christians for a few months, There are people in this room who have been Christians for 40, 50, 60 plus years. It is necessary for all of us, Lord, to be continually building upon the foundation of truth, to be growing in you. Lord, help us to live out our Christian life, praying in the power of the Holy Spirit as we await the return of your Son. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.